um, being hungry for God. And uh, I, I'm, you know, I know it's really simplistic. And at times in the past, I've resisted this as a pastor and as a believer in Jesus Christ. I don't want to just simplify things down to, you know, Jesus is the answer for everything. Because I know that there are complexities in the world. And there are some things that, that don't just turn on a dime because all of a sudden we got the right idea in our head or the right information. That some things require time to change and transform. But the more I look at what's happening in the world, the more convinced I am that without Jesus Christ, our world is going to go uh, down a road of destruction. And I I don't just mean eventually when people die. I I mean destruction here and now. And uh, so I, I really want to remind you at the front end that when we're talking about being hungry for God and we're talking about issues having to do with food and spirituality, having Jesus Christ in our life is crucial. It's crucial. If there's one thing I could give you, it is having the presence of Jesus in your life. I sit down with couples that want to get married and the first time I meet with them, I tell them right up front, the one thing I can give you to strengthen your marriage is to put you both on a level playing field where you both listen to God first and, and obey him. So I know it's simplistic, but I think that's, that's just a base level. And I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. I did tell you that uh, last week, you know, I, I deviated a little bit. And so I'm going to cover a few things because I want to talk really quickly about the condition of our world and our society when it comes to food. When food becomes too important, when it becomes more important than God intended it to be. And uh, this, this happens on both extremes. Where food is too important because we tend to use food for things that it was never intended to do. Or it becomes really important on the other extreme because we don't have any. So in recent years, uh, there's a term that's been adopted and is floating around sociological circles and political circles called food insecurity. Instead of just talking about hunger, now they're talking about food insecurity. I'll talk about hunger in a bit. But food insecurity, it, really, there's a, there's a big definition for it, and we'll get to that. But, but we're just talking about when the lack of food becomes critical or the lack of access to food becomes critical. On, so that's the one end of the spectrum. The one extreme is when food is insecure. You're just not going to have enough The other end of the spectrum, if I could come all the way over here, is food obsession. And this is where food becomes so important because we fixate on it and we tend to use it to do things that that food cannot really do. And so just keep that spectrum in mind that somewhere in the middle there's this healthy view, this godly view of food. So as we talk about this, I'm coming back to this food insecurity. Here's the definition that comes actually, I think, from our government. uh, Came up with this in one of their documents. Food insecurity is the limited or uncertain availability of nutritionally adequate and safe foods or limited or uncertain ability to acquire acceptable foods in socially acceptable ways. Now you go, wow, that's a lot of words, but why is that important? Here's why it's important, because it talks about just not being able to have access to the food because maybe there's drought or famine or war, 
But then it also goes on to talk about having access to food in socially acceptable ways. Not being forced to do things that in our culture we would go, that's wrong. I don't have to steal. I don't have to sell my body. If I have to do those things, there's food insecurity. If I have to do things that are destructive in order to eat, there's a problem. So that's the definition. I think it's a great definition. And in 2016, it was estimated that one in eight Americans were food insecure. So, you know, you could look around and kind of start counting people here today. That means that in America, 42 million Americans, including 13 million children. That's pretty significant for food insecurity. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily they went hungry. It meant their access to it was compromised or uh, uh, it just wasn't available. But still, 42 million Americans faced food insecurity. Even in our town here in Wichita, if you've been downtown, you know that's where our food pantry is, down there, right down Douglas, and between Intrust and, and uh, Century 2. Uh, I noticed driving down there a couple weeks ago, there's a new grocery store going in on Douglas. Until then, there has only been one store a block north of Interest Arena that sells groceries in the entire downtown area. Now, if you're one of those people who lived in one of those beautiful lofts over there in Old Town or at, out at the waterfront, that's no big deal because you get in your $50,000 car and you drive out west or you drive out east, you go to Rock Road or you come over here to New Market Square and you buy whatever you need. But if you're a homeless person in that downtown area or if you're one of the people who live like in the Shirkmere, that means you've got to go a long way to buy basic food. And so people, even in Wichita, face food insecurity. So keep moving here. Uh, now let's talk about hunger, not just food insecurity. Let's talk about real hunger. Uh, by the way, as I, as I studied this and did some research, I was really convicted. And I have to admit that I was really quick, I've been really quick to just dismiss hunger issues at times. Well, that's not as important as this, whatever this might be. And as I read through this, I thought, wow, our issues of world hunger are enormous. So hunger is the number one health risk in the world. In fact, it kills more people each year than malaria, tuberculosis, and AIDS combined. That is a huge statement. People die of hunger-related issues. More people die of hunger-related issues than malaria, TB, and AIDS combined. I know a lot about malaria, and when I read this, I was blown away because there are a lot of people that die of malaria every year. So take that out and do the math. That means that every five seconds, every five seconds, a child dies from hunger-related diseases. You got that? One, two, three, four, five. Another one dies. And in the world, that, and there's approximations, because it's hard for them to quantify this in places where there's war, but approximately 3.1 children die each year from hunger or hunger-related causes. 
3.1 million. Let me put this into perspective for you. We care a lot about abortion. Last year, that means 4.7 times, almost five times as many kids died of hunger in the world than were aborted in America. Five times as many. And so this, my friends, globally is a huge, it is an enormous issue for us. Don't make the mistake of thinking it's because we don't have enough food. Let me just tell you that right up front. That is not the issue. Because we in America have access to the cheapest, some of the cheapest food in the world. And in America, it's estimated, I didn't put this on the slides, I don't think, it might show up later. It's estimated in America that we waste about 40% of the food that is prepared in the United States. So what goes in the dumpster at McDonald's or school lunch program or... Uh, in our homes where we put it back in the fridge and then forget about it and it molds, we waste about 40% of our food supply. Waste. 45% of all childhood deaths in the world, 45% are caused by poor nutrition. There are more hungry people in the world than the combined populations of the United States, Canada, and the European Union. So when you start talking about world hunger, you just realize these are big, big numbers. And we might be tempted to say, well, there's nothing I can do about that. Uh, let's not make that mistake. <clears throat> in 2016, this really discouraged me. In 2016, world hunger increased for the first time in 15 years. So for the past 15 years, we've seen a decline in world hunger. We've done a better job of feeding people. But in 2016, it increased. And, and I'm not quite sure why that is. And the World Health Organization is looking at that. They're trying to figure out why it is. They have, they're speculating, but uh, not sure why that is yet. Three-fourths of all chronically malnourished children live in conflict-affected regions. Just read that as war. Three-fourths of malnourished children live in a place that is at war. And so I think, I go back to that 2016, it increased. And you look at what's happened in our world the last couple of years in places like Syria and Libya and Congo and Yemen. And you realize that, you know, there's a direct correlation between war and hunger. They're directly related. I had the benefit of, in my teenage years, um, the Civil War was raging in, in Mozambique. And we lived just across the border in South Africa. And a part of my dad's responsibilities as missionary was to coordinate food assistance. And we would load up our van, sometimes trucks, with rice and beans and corn. And we would drive down to the border and we would convey it across the border to our brothers and sisters in Christ and we would send it in to them because they were starving. And I got to see hunger up close and personal. And it changed my life. It changed my life. And it changed the way I think about people who live in war-torn areas. Who just want to feed their kids and give them an education. And uh, there's this direct relation. Now, let's, let's go from, that was the one side of the 
spectrum. That was the one extreme. Let's go to the other extreme, a food obsession. In the United States, 10% of college women suffer from a clinical or near-clinical eating disorder. 10%. In fact, 5.1% of college women suffer from bulimia nervosa. And you guys know what that is, right? You eat, and then you purge. You throw it back up. Because you think, I've eaten too much. Um, if you think that's disturbing, 13 million Americans binge eat. Here's one that talks just about body concept and the way we view bodies. The average American woman is 5 feet 4 inches tall and weighs 140 pounds, and the average female fashion model is 5 feet 11 inches tall and weighs 110 pounds. Not very realistic, is it? At all. They are not, (laughs) I'm going to take heat for this, they're not real women. That's not fair, but you understand what I'm getting at. This, we, we have this image concept out there that is not really realistic. And then we impose that primarily on women, but it's not just women. There's men that suffer from these eating disorders as well. And so going forward from there, and this one really uh, hit at home for me, but 42% of first through third grade girls want to be thinner. First through third grade want to be thinner. So this led me to this kind of statement. Things are messed up and people are dying in misery. I told you about being in high school and my teen years and helping out with food assistance and famine. We also, we were attending church uh, and our local church, we had a young uh, couple that came there and uh, she had been a beauty queen. Uh, before they married, she had been in these pageants. And by the time they started attending our church, they'd been married a few years. And by that time, she was showing all the signs of advanced anorexia. And so as a teenage boy, here I balanced, you know, I see people who are starving because they have no access. They just don't have any food. And I see somebody else who is starving themselves because they've been convinced that that this is what beauty looks like. And so I, I got to see both extremes sometimes in the same week. And we, we loved this couple and we walked alongside them and then uh, we moved away in my junior high years and heard about two years later that finally uh, the, the health issues that came from her bulimia and anorexia caught up with her and shut down her organs and she passed away. And I just go, you know, things are messed up and people are dying in misery on both ends of the spectrum. So, I challenged you last week to read the book of Micah. And the book of Micah, I, I love it because God is saying to the people who are living in places where they don't belong, I'm going to bring you back, and when I bring you back and, and restore you, this is what it would look like if I have my way. If we do things God's way, this is what it will look like. And so, in, and by the way, one of my favorite verses in all scripture is Micah 6, and it's found in Micah 6. If you read through it, you probably tumbled on that, and you go, wow, I've heard that before. But let's read here in Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. This is when the Lord has his way, and he restores people. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all. 
the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. This is the way God wants it. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion, his word will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between peoples and he will settle disputes between strong nations far away. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. So all the way back in Micah's day, the Lord was saying, you see this correlation between war and famine? Everyone will live in peace and prosperity. That's the way God wants it. Enjoying their own grapevines and fig trees, for there will be nothing to fear. The Lord of heaven's armies has made this promise. Now, I'm just going to stop there for a moment. What do we know about God's promises? You can count on them, right? They come, to, they come to be. If we do this, where we walk in his path, we learn his ways, God will bring about these kinds of promises. So not, let's not make the mistake of being those people who go, you know what, maybe in heaven that could happen. Let's not do that. Let's not forsake what God wants to do in this world with us. Though the nations around us follow their idols, we will follow the Lord our God forever and ever. So when God reigns, and we have this vision that Micah was given, when and God said, Micah, this is the way I want it. Tell the people that when, when it goes my way, this is what it looks like. We learn these things. First he says, he will teach us his ways and we get to walk in his path. That's in verse 2. And so I think that there needs to be some kind of correction, maybe even repentance, where we go, Lord, we are failing to understand and follow your ways. If this many people are dying, if this many people are hungry, if this many people are living in misery and we've messed it up this much, we aren't doing what you teach us to do. That's a spiritual matter. That's not an economic matter. That's not a political or geopolitical matter. That's a spiritual matter. Lord, teach us your ways and we will walk in your path. Okay? So that's part of it. But then he goes on and he says, you know what? When I get to do things my way, when God does it his way, he will mediate and turn weapons into tools for agriculture. Remember? Swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. If you go to New York City, to the United Nations, regardless of what issues you have politically with the UN, when you go to the United Nations, there's a statue out in front of a man taking a sword and beating it with a hammer and turning it into a plow. They have borrowed this imagery, this scriptural, biblical imagery to go, you know what? Could we be the kind of people who turn war into prosperity? Peace and prosperity. And, and as Micah is telling these words that God gave him, he says, I'm going to mediate these things. I'm going to bring war to an end. And when I bring war to an end, you're going to go, I don't need that weapon anymore. But what we could use is something to plant and harvest with. 
That is the Lord's desire. The next thing we learn in verse 4 is that peace and prosperity is defined by God as the people enjoying their own food. I'm going to go back to my high school years. We were helping out with famine relief. We would go down there. We would take what we could buy that good free Methodist people here in America gave their money to buy. And we would go down there and we'd stop at the border and we'd get the food across the border. And there would be other trucks coming in. And frequently there would be big trucks coming in with sack after sack of wheat and corn. And they were in these white sacks that had red, white, and blue across them that said USAID. And I'm proud of that. Don't get me wrong, I'm really glad that America steps up in times of need and provides for people around the world who are starving. But I think that's a band-aid. Because scripture tells me that when it goes God's way, people have their own food. They enjoy from their own vineyards. And they don't have to wait and rely on on America to do it. But I'll tell you, if America doesn't do it in the crisis, we're doing, we're kind of compounding evil, aren't we? So, now I want to jump forward into the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, verse 26. I'm, I'm kind of sandwiching these two messages together, so bear with me, I'm going really fast. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you. All these people are coming around Jesus and they're clamoring to be around him. But remember, he fed the 5,000 with the loaves and fish. And he said, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. I just want to stop here for a moment. Jesus has this understanding that he is drawing people to him primarily because they eat. They get to have food. The fact that he did it miraculously and he divided these fish and this bread or the fact that he did other miraculous signs and he healed that person and he made them see when they were blind. He goes, no, you're primarily coming to me because I'm feeding you. It's not just the free Methodist or the Baptist that, you know, when we hold a potluck, people come. Even Jesus himself. Now, for some of us, we might, for pastors and church leaders, we go, Phew, even Jesus had this issue. That's why you come, because I feed you. And then he goes on to say, Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, again, we can, we can shift gears into the figurative and say, well, he's talking about this figuratively. He's talking about spiritual hunger and feeding. But, you know, I, I think it's remarkable how over and over again in Scripture, the Lord uses double meaning. And he says things that mean one thing, but they also mean another. And uh, I think this is double meaning because I, I think that the Lord says, you know, when you come to me, I'm the bread of life and you'll never be hungry again if you do it my way. You won't be hungry spiritually and you won't be hungry physically if you do it my way. So if we then, and, I, and I'm coming back to this, you know, this baseline of Jesus we need Christ in the world. So if we learn to feed on Jesus, I've got a couple of questions for you. If we learn to feed on Jesus, let's ask ourselves, can, can Jesus Christ really satisfy us? Several, many years ago, 
pastoring a church. There were some women in the church. They got together to do a weight loss program. It was, it was really an incredible thing. My wife was a part of it. They got together. They did this weight loss program. The primary driver in the weight loss program was when you feel hungry, you need to remind yourself that Jesus is enough. A couple of women in that program lost a tremendous amount of weight. But what I noticed more than the weight they lost was the demeanor. The women that were in that program, they would come to church and they would go, you know, so I got hungry this week and I just started praying. And then when that happened, this happened. And God used me to talk to so-and-so or he, he changed the circumstances in our family meal dynamic or something. And I, I noticed that these women who were finding the conflict point over food were also finding a deeper walk with Jesus. It's incredible. And I would just tell you that when we ask that question, can Jesus Christ really satisfy me? It isn't just about food. It's about our money. And needing a new car or a new house or new clothes or a new girlfriend or a new boyfriend or husband or wife. Or you can go in any direction to whatever void we feel in our lives, whatever emptiness there is. Do we really believe that Jesus Christ can fill that? I want to tell you, in my very simplistic, faith-filled way, I believe only Jesus Christ can fill that. So I think we just need to be asking ourselves this question, will I be satisfied in Christ? You remember at the very beginning of this series, some of you will remember, I read Paul's words about, I will be content in whatever position God wants me. I'll be content. I think, I hope we can learn this when we're young because we'll need it when we're old. Some of you know what I'm talking about. That, you know, when we get older and our bodies don't function the way they used to and we have to rely on things that we don't like to, am I content because I'm satisfied in Jesus Christ when the sufficiency of my physical health begins to drain away? I read this and um, where it hit close to home for me, not just with regard to food, but our physical beings is, I thought about my mom. My mom has dementia. And we're really open about it. We, people come and talk to us and ask us questions. And, we're, and you know, we just talk about it because my family's kind of convinced that if we pretend it's something else, it's not going to go away. <laughs> and so we do. We just talk about it. And my mom's very open about it. If you ask her, she'll tell you, and she will probably make jokes about it. I'll just warn you. But as I thought about this with my mom, I thought, you know, if my mom loses her mind to the point where she no longer knows who I am, can Jesus satisfy me? Is it okay? And then I wondered, when she reaches that point, can he satisfy her? And so that's becoming my prayer. Help us, Lord, be satisfied in you. Wherever we feel emptiness, come and fill it. And then, if we can do that as satisfied people, how then will we be able to share the bounty that God gives? And here's the thing. I think when we, start, when we talk about food, that may be a couple of steps down the road.
but how can we share out of all the goodness and all the blessing that God has given us? If we can share that emotionally, if I can say, God has blessed me so much so I can be nice to mean people, I can probably say, God has blessed me so much so I can help feed hungry people. And if God has blessed me that much that I can feed hungry people, he's probably blessed me enough that I can help poor people. And if he's blessed me that much, he can probably help me help people who will never be really smart or really beautiful or really talented. If I am satisfied in Christ, I have more than enough. Paul said it like this. It is the Spirit of God pressed down, shaken together, and running over. <laughs> Remember that? My cup runs over. We used to sing about that as kids in, in church, you know. Running over, running over. My cup is full and running over. What a great message to teach our kids. There is sufficiency in God. There is satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And our cup can be full and running over. And so, coming back to the hunger issue, if you're one of those people who go, you know what, I, I, I eat my emotions. Maybe you could start having a conversation about, Lord, can you satisfy when I feel depressed or discouraged or alone? And not use a cheeseburger to feel like I'm not. I know it's a double negative. Bad grammar, sorry. Coming back to Micah 4 <laughs> in verse 5. Though the nations around us follow their idols, whether they think it's what we eat or what we've got or what we enjoy or how we're entertained, we will follow the Lord our God forever. And I would just maybe change that a little bit for these circumstances and say we will be satisfied with the Lord our God forever and ever. He said, I am the bread of heaven. Contentment with Christ, or I should say contentment in Christ, uh, is really what we should aspire to. And in doing that, if we can be that content, that we then see how we handle food and water resources as spiritual work. I, I've met some incredible people who are doing amazing things all around the world to address this stuff. So, Dr. Frank Ogden that I knew as a kid, he developed a, a program in Rwanda uh, where he came up with a combination of grains. He calls it busoma. And if you go to our Free Methodist Hospital in, in Kibagora, they have a whole plant now that they bring these grains together and they mix them up because he, did it, he went through all the nutrients. He said, if, you know, you could eat this every day and, and you would not starve. I have to be honest, it doesn't taste good. I'm sorry. My American palate, I taste, I go, I don't know. But boy, it's keeping kids alive. Busoma. I met these guys down in Oklahoma City that, are, that have started an organization called Water 4 where they're helping to, to drill water wells around the world through a technology they develop where you can drill water wells by hand. So you don't have to have machines. You just have to have these tools and then when they have the tools, they can go around and they can provide water. By the way, access to water is one of the primary movers of food supply. You know, we're here in Kansas. We understand that. We understand agriculture. We've worked with Clear Blue Global who have helped with clean water projects around the world. And I, I will tell you that if we can answer the water problems, I think the food problem will follow right behind that. 
So how do we steward this so that that village in Africa or that village in the mountains in South America have water and then have food? Do you know that we have a couple of missionaries that serve in the Free Methodist Church that their primary responsibility is agricultural? Their primary responsibility is to help people understand how to grow crops and raise livestock so they can provide food. And we do that because we don't see any kind of a disconnect from kingdom work. This is the way we build the kingdom of God. And this is the way we bring the kingdom of God here on earth. Thy will be done. So my friends, I want to challenge you to do a little bit of thinking and maybe a little rearranging in your life. I know that some of you go, man, I've got dietary restrictions. You have no idea how frustrating it is to try and find the kind of food I need. I know that some of the rest of you are like me. We can eat just about anything and like to. But I'm trying to be mindful when I sit down to a meal and say, okay, Lord, I don't want to waste food. I want to enjoy it. I don't want to overindulge and I don't want to become obsessed with it. I want to hold it as a resource from you. And I want to be reminded that there are people not too far from me, but all around the world who would give way more than they should to have the meal I'm enjoying. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the way that you provide for us. You are our great provider. You placed this world into order in a way that the the ground yields its crops. (laughs) You've given us access to this and you expect us to use it as good stewards. So help us, God. Help us understand how what is on our plate at lunch this afternoon affects somebody halfway around the world in a refugee camp because there's fighting right outside the fence, wondering if they'll get to eat it all today. And so, Lord, give us your heart and also give us your mind. We want to do things the way you want them done. We want to be able to see Micah's vision actually happen. And so, God, open our eyes and open our hearts to believe, to welcome, and to follow and obey. Amen. Would our ushers come forward? We will have our tithes and offerings.